This podcast is brought to you by Workle, a platform helping people get happier at work. Find out more at workle.co. Work happier. The point was to try and change children's behaviour, their relationship with food. You know, most people say, you're mad, it's not going to work, you're taking such a massive risk, why are you doing this? Successful entrepreneurs don't embrace failure, but they accept it as part of the journey and they learn from it. We operated in a way that was very human, and that's the secret of the success that I had. Welcome to the Happy Work Life Podcast, where people with inspiring careers reflect on how happy they have been in their working lives. On this podcast, we hear from a range of people working in business, startups, science, academia, media, healthcare, fashion, and much more, and find out which roles gave them the most satisfaction and, importantly, what they have done to get happier at work. So sit down with me, Mark Price, founder of Workle, to help you get happier at work. Workle is the platform where you can find a job in the happiest companies, take our happiness test, network, and get career support from experts and much, much more. On this edition of the Happy Work Life podcast, I'm delighted to be talking to Paul Lindley. Paul is the founder of Ella's Kitchen, an organic baby and children's food brand, which I'm sure you'll all have heard of. He's an author. Uh, He's got a best-selling book called Little Wins, The Power of Thinking Like a Toddler. But also, I'll talk to him about his new book, which is coming out shortly. After graduating, he worked in consultancy. Then he went on to hold a senior role at Nickelodeon, the children's TV channel. And it was after that that he founded Ella's Kitchen. So we'll talk to him about that journey and also all the other things that he's done with government and outside. Paul, welcome to the podcast. You've led such an amazing business life, so varied and you've achieved so much. But before we talk about that, I'd really like to talk to you about your school years and to find out if there was anything in that that sort of led the way to you being a a food entrepreneur. So tell us about your schooling and education. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me on. You know, I was just reflecting, you know, I had a pretty idyllic childhood, I suppose. I I mean, I know a lot of your work is around happiness in the workplace and thriving in the workplace. And and I had a really happy childhood. And I was just thinking about what made that happy. And certainly things like strong relationships, you know, family, strong family relationships, uh, stability, um, and an ethic around ambition, around education and hard work that was instilled with me by from my parents, who which was instilled by them, by, by their history. And I was just thinking about how my education played out was really about a fundamental decision they made in uh, when I was about seven years old, which they moved from Sheffield, where I was born, to Zambia. My dad was a civil servant and he worked for what would be now Bifid, but um, uh, and went out to Zambia from that. But the main drive for them going out there was that the government would pay for our education in the UK um, at a, a private school, which they certainly couldn't afford otherwise. But they saw such a value in education that that was what their uh, they were prepared to do to, to get my brother and I the best possible education. And that came from a position from both of them. My mum's parents were uh, immigrants from Ireland into the UK in the 1930s who eloped. They came with nothing but pennies in their pockets and they formed a life here. And then my dad's grandparents 
Um, I have their marriage certificate in the back of my little day book here, which I will show you, but will be useless for um, our, our listeners. But this marriage certificate was in 1862, about a hundred and something years before I was born, but both of my great grandparents signed with an X. Neither of them had education. And really, when I found that, that has really sort of almost defined my life and made me understand why my parents from those two backgrounds really valued education. And, um, and, and it has made me lead to some of the work that I've done because I've thought, well, like four generations back, I can't do anything about their, the, the opportunities they missed and the options that they didn't have because they couldn't read or write um, and how that played out on their chances in life. Um, and how every generation has sort of since then has has nudged forward a little bit in our family. Um, but I can have an influence on people for away from me horizontally, if you like, rather than vert vertically. So I do try and reach out to say that has really affected me, that lack of education, the opportunities that education bring and the benefit and the privilege that I had to, to have a family that valued, valued education and them to have the wherewithal to work out how they thought that I could... Um, get a better education. So, you know, it it, it, it was uh, a turning point in my life, I suppose, because I went on to be the first person in our family to go to university from there. And then obviously, I've been extremely lucky in the relationships that I've forged in the opportunities that I've had to form my own company, and to give my children a completely different opportunity than I had, than my dad had, than my granddad had, than his father had, and his father had before then. So education is right at the heart of how I think um, society moves forward from that story of my own family. And on your education, you, you went to Bristol University, you read politics and economics. What drew you to those topics? Yeah, well, there's a story there as well, Mark, because, you know, the life learning of the story I'm about to tell is fail fast, because I, uh, I started, I, I did sciences for A-levels, and I started doing um, cellular pathology at Bristol, um, and, you know, within weeks, I thought, oh my goodness, what have I done? I don't understand it. I don't really, you know, I was nervous about university anyway, not, not having a family tradition of that. And um, I, after a term, thought I've just got to change this. I'm not going to succeed or I'm going to be miserable or I don't really know where this is going to take me uh, or I'm not going to get my degree. And I looked around at things that I'd never done before formally in education, but I knew I liked and sort of current affairs, the news, the economy, politics, really appealed to me. So I applied to start again the following September. And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed my degree and the consequences of that, the sliding doors moments of sort of I met my girlfriend who became my wife and still my wife um, through that change and that different set of friends that I had and my lifelong friends from then. And I, you know, my career kind of went from, from that degree. But, you know, my learning was if you're not happy, it's up to you to change things and, you know, recognize your failure, fail fast and try and find a way to something that you can succeed at and use that learning. And did you enjoy your change degree? I absolutely loved my change degree. And, you know, it was something that I was passionate about and, you know, got me thinking, um, you know, and I think that defined the rest of my, my path, my journey um, through the various stages of my career. So, so do a shout out for politics and economics as a degree. Why should people study it? Um, I think it gives you both the, 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 the sort of maths and the arts, the sciences and the arts, um, how we live as a society, um, how we, why, go back to why, 
Why is the thing that drives me all the time? Perhaps why not? Constantly asking those questions, being curious and challenging things, but why we want to create a strong economy? What do we want to do with that? How we create a society where everybody gets the chance to thrive? You know, I've spent most of my career using business as the, as the route to do that. Um, through creating that wealth, through creating innovation, through the products and services that my what I've been involved with have created and making the world a better place. But then how what we do with that, what we do with that with that wealth that we created within our company, how it's shared between the shareholders and the team and how it's reinvested in more innovation and, and more opportunity for our consumers. Um, Alice Kitchen, my company I founded, became a B Corp, one of the first B corporations. How does the ecosystem of the economy work? All of that you know, stems from the questioning of why, which stems from my understanding of economics and politics um, from the from, from university. But ultimately, both of those things, that there, there is not an endless supply of money and there is not an endless supply of ideas of what to do with society. So both economics and, and politics are about prioritizing, be able to prioritize decisions and actions that help the world be a better place. That's how I see it anyway. Good. Oh, you've done a great job for um for the discipline there. Now I know that everybody's going to want to hear you talk about selling, setting up uh, Ella's Kitchen and, and how that came about. But before we get there, I think we need to talk about you leaving university and going into consulting. So why did you do that? Why did you um go and work for KPMG? And I know that you worked in London and and obviously in America. So something about that. And then, of course, nine years at Nickelodeon, which most mm. people will think, wow, how fantastic mm. to go into yeah. entertainment and media. So, so take us on, on, on what happened from you completing your degree to going to work for one of the biggest consultants in the country. You know, I graduated in uh, 1989 just as a sort of recession was beginning. And my friends that had got their jobs in the second year in 1988 you know, got jobs quite easily. 19, by 1989, it was much more difficult. And the jobs I was looking at were sort of international relations and the Commonwealth Secretariat and the Foreign Office and kind of, you know, more more to do with the politics side, I suppose, uh, and relationships. Um, and I, I didn't get through any anywhere. Um, so I began to think, you know, perhaps I should get another string to my bow. Perhaps I should take three years to become a chartered accountant uh, and qualified and understand you know, take the economic side a, 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 a lot further because uh, I thought that would open up a lot more opportunities for me later in life. So uh, I, I got to work for KPMG and I was there for five years and I became a chartered accountant and I worked with a lot of uh, their media entertainment clients, uh, which led me to work in Los Angeles for a while um, with them uh, and then ultimately get my job as the financial controller of uh, Nickelodeon. Uh, a little bit later, but, um, you know, I, I think, you know, I think uh, uh, an organization like KPMG um, is great as a, a grounding of what work is like and you know, the opportunity to see lots of different businesses of their clients and how they work and the opportunities they're taking, the risks they're taking, the challenges they're facing. Um, but it's a big, big organization. It's very suited and booted and very hierarchical in those days. And that is not me at all. So I, I was very conscious or very determined that this will be a stepping stone to learn a, a skill set, to learn um, how business works better um, and, and to, to use that to move on to do other things. Um, I think what I learned from America, and I've spent a lot of my career with American companies and with American colleagues in, in, in America, um, 
is how different the culture over there is to here around around the workplace. I, I worked in Los Angeles and my colleagues came from you know a 50 mile radius into work and then went home again. So that I found, at least then, there was very little um, social interaction. They didn't really know each other outside of their job title and their functional communication and relationships to get the job done. And I don't think that's how the, you get the best out of people at work. And I certainly hasn't been the experiences of the cultures that I've had in the UK. So I, I noticed a difference there. And then later in my career, sort of with, with sort of how private equity and, and investors sort of a venture capital relationship with with founders um I, I find very different in america and in the uk so that was a little learning from that but then i used that 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 stepping stone to be able to go on to nickelodeon which was very very different in culture really small uh business it was very entrepreneurial even though it was owned by news corp and firecom two huge media companies but we were young we were all in our late 20s early 30s the the industry the sector was new uh, so we had enough sort of rope to tie ourselves up, but they they, they sort of gave, they gave us the freedom to, to be able to do that. And, um, you know, the internet was just coming along, digital television was just coming on, children's specific television and how, children, how television could help children's lives improve was beginning to be thought about. So I was right at the heart of that, and that was seminal in my future journey. Um, and, and whilst that, those uh, nearly 10 years I was at Nickelodeon, I moved from being the finance guy uh, from controller to finance director to to having a much broader role, you know, as general manager uh, at the end. But I learned really, I suppose, the power of marketing, the power of communication. How perhaps as an accountant, I thought about it as a cost, and coming out of it, I thought about it as an investment. And it's you know, and, and much so much of the future work that I've done, whether that's in trying to campaign to get things changed, and the power of voice and the power of communication to be able to do that, or in any other situation, the power to be able to communicate a mission and an idea and to motivate people to change their behaviors, whether they're your employees, whether you're consumers in business, it's due to you know branding, marketing, communication, however you want to call that. Um, and that was my learning. So by the time I finished uh, at Nickelodeon, I was confident enough to pursue uh, ideas that I had about you know creating my own business and, and, and moving forward to then. And when I found you know, a gap in the, not a gap in the market, a gap in society of which I thought the market could fill. Children, from my experience at, uh, at Nickelodeon, you know, were living less healthy lives than their generation before um, and what could be done about it. And, you know, I guess at Nickelodeon, our focus had been on trying to address the fact that television was often blamed. They're watching bad ads, too many ads, and they're not playing outside, and therefore they're not getting as healthy as they should be. Um, I tried to change that through food um, and, and inventing and innovating to create you know, the brand that became Ella's Kitchen. And just taking us through that journey, because I, I know there'll be people listening to this podcast who, who aren't feeling comfortable in their jobs or are thinking about doing different things. So you had um, a couple of years with KPMG, and then you had nine years with Nickelodeon, and then you've made this decision to to leave all of the corporate structure and set up your own thing. So looking back at it, who who what kind of person do you think fits best into a, 
a big corporate like KPMG and you've talked about why it wasn't quite right for you. What kind of person fits best into something that's a, an entrepreneurial kind of startup um, enterprise? And what kind of person do you think has got the right kind of ingredients to move in to be a, a food entrepreneur? Yeah, I can only speak from me. So I, I can't really address who's the sort of person that fits well into a huge organization, which is structured and hierarchical and you kind of work your way through. Um, I know that's not me, but I don't know what kind of person that is. What What is me, what attracted to me about trying on my own and trying to change things is, I, I guess what I just talked about a little bit earlier, that, that constant question that's in the back of my head of why and why not. And when I started articulating, I've got this idea to you know, start a food business and be different than any other food business. It's going to really focus on the emotion around babies as well, and, uh, instead of the functional um, aspect of baby food. Um, and I'm going to build a brand in a very different way with different packaging and different recipes. You know, most people said, you're mad. It's not going to work. You know, you're taking such a massive risk. Why are you doing this? And I was thought, I'm doing it because it excites me. <laughs> and I think I would... I, I, I'm asking the question why what's so clear in my head isn't isn't played out and I was prepared to give it a go now I evaluated the risks and I gave myself two years to get to market and I retained and kept my relationships and my networks going with my previous job in that sector and just in case and just so it was going back so I really thought about it was I'm going to put some money in that money is like the money I would have put into an MBA I've been in somewhere for nine years. I do want to move on. I could do an MBA and kind of really move on within the corporate world, or I could get the same sort of learning from doing something that might become something that excites me. I think it could shift the needle on, on, on better food for children and therefore healthier lives for children. Uh, I want to try it and, uh, and see it because I'm asking that question why all the time. Um, and then very quickly when I started, um, you know, with buy-in from my wife, thank goodness. And, um, you know, we've been in partnership through this and sort of decision-making, but, you know, we remortgaged our house. So it was very serious. So I'd been working for 10 or 15 years. So we had got some savings, but, you know, we've got a young family and we remortgaged our house. Um, really serious. So my experience of being an accountant and, and, and um, you know, understanding a balance sheet and cash flow and, and all of that was really important to getting the business plan together. My experience with marketing and the power of a brand and the um, the, the power that, that that can help have to change people's behaviours and, and motivate them to try something new and to try uh, a, a, and convince them that we were not just about the function of what they were buying, but kind of the brand, the values and the, the, the mission that I was on. Uh, and then trying to get people to work for me that were passionate, as passionate as I was, but had different skill sets. All of that excited me and all the kind of work. So, you know, I was, uh, we had two two different ranges in that first year that I, or the two years that I took to develop. One was uh, around pure baby food and the other was sort of um, more for toddlers and, uh, and, and primary school kids. And um, it, it, it sort of, with tenacity and determination and, creative thinking about how I could best use the small amount of money that I had by building relationships that became trusted um, and being really open about what I was trying to achieve um, and, you know, bloody hard work. Um, I got into Sainsbury's and, you know, as you will obviously know, uh, Waitrose in that first uh, first year. 
And, you know, in the food industry, the, the market power, I guess, is skewed. There's, there's, there's a few very powerful retailers, which is a double-edged sword for a supplier. You get into them and you've got a chance of going, you know, getting big quite quickly. If you don't, you've got no chance, but the, the kind of negotiating power is um, out, out of whack a little bit as well. So you've got to be very uh, persuasive and very unique in, in what you're saying you're offering to your partner and, and follow through with that. But, you know, we launched in all of White Trade stores and 350 or so Sainsbury stores in that first year. And with, you know, baby food and that was different in that it was in very different packaging to every other baby food was in. It was different recipe connotations. It was kind of out there a little bit with weird things that are mixed together. Um, the, the branding was very different to um, the, here we are, functional baby food, it's safe, please buy it, to this is to help your baby thrive and you to enjoy being taking the weaning stage of being a parent and to help you getting healthy food into your children. So um, it was very emotional as a parent to a parent rather than a corporation to a consumer. And um, and, and so taking all of those innovations, I had no idea whether it would work or not. And I didn't think, you know, oh, the point of this is to build this business to try and sell it. The point was to try and change children's behavior, their relationship with food through through, through what we were developing. And, you know, Mark, it, it, through through your company's help and, and the other retailers, we, we every year we doubled our turnover um, from the first year through seven years, from nothing to 70 odd million, seven years later, uh, were profitable from the very beginning, but kind of, I hope, operated in a way that was very human and that's the secret of the success that i had we 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 placed human beings at the heart of the decisions and the actions that, that we took um by trying to influence behavior change 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 behavior and understand motivation so that we were all aligned over the purpose and the mission of what we're trying to do it's an incredible story paul to um to see the opportunity when you're working at nickelodeon to then make that happen to take the huge risk of leaving a big corporate and all of the security you get around pay and whatever uh, to set up to build a brand and do what he did is a, it's a, just a phenomenal story. Tell us about Paddy's Bathroom. I got probably more learnings from Paddy's Bathroom because although many people know about his kitchen and I don't know Paddy's Bathroom because it doesn't actually exist anymore. So, um, you know, uh, part of the part of the, 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 the idea behind Ella's Kitchen was was born of the lived experience I had of weaning my daughter Ella. So the, the business is named after Ella. And, you know, as I say, the, the idea was, look, I'm just a parent. I've not done this before, but I know what I value in my, my child's food and uh, how to make it fun and how to uh, know whether it's healthy or not. And I just tried to communicate that with, with, with our consumers. Um, but I've got two children and Petty's my, my son. And um, I was thinking, oh my goodness, I've set a rod for my own back here. But I sort of thought, you know, there's 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 um, a space. I thought there was a space in the sort of um, uh, personal care for the young children uh, market of shampoos and bubble baths and um, and all those washing products, hand washers and things um, that, um, that that could be more natural. Some of the chemicals that are in many of the mainstream um, products uh, we, we took out an organic range and we tried to make getting clean as fun as it was to get dirty and we grew and we got into the retailers and we grew to about two or three million pound turnover and um 
the, 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 the thing that I was most proud of within Paddy's bathroom was the, the, the social mission was really bought square on the back of the pack because for every drop of water that a consumer used in washing their child's hair, we would create a drop of clean water for a child in a part of the world in Rwanda that didn't have access to clean water. And I was trying to link that social mission into um, a, a business. Now, perhaps I did that too much because over the two or three years that Petty's Bathroom existed, I couldn't find a way to make a sustainable profit. Um, and you know, I had to make the hard decision at some point to say, this isn't the sustainable way to try and, and improve children's hygiene and, and, and opportunity. I've got other ways to do that, I made the hard decision to, to, to close the business. So, you know, lots of learnings there about failure. What I was talking about a few minutes ago about failing fast when I did the university, I kind of followed that through. And that learning I had earlier, 20 years earlier, you know, played through with the decision about Paddy's bathroom. And I think the successful entrepreneurs don't embrace failure, but they accept it as part of the journey and they learn from it. And everyone, you and I are going to fail more times today in things we try and do than we don't. Now we've got strategies of how to address those failures, ignore them, learn from them, etc. But, you know, failure is part of the journey to success. And as long as you learn and adapt, then it's a crucial, important part that should be welcomed. And as long as you fail within the boundaries of what you can afford in time and money and emotion, then you know it's a positive thing in life. When it's outside of those boundaries, obviously it brings toxic stress. But um, so uh, my advice to entrepreneurs is, you know, expect to fail, but set those boundaries as to when that becomes, you know, from green failure to amber to red failure, act quickly because you know you can get in all sorts of trouble if you don't do that. Well, it's great advice. And I have to say, in talking to entrepreneurs on this podcast over the last four or five years, I think a theme, Paul, is that um, they're not afraid of failure, but they don't let it affect their ability to keep pressing on. It's a lesson learned. It's more knowledge, and it's going to make the next thing better. Whereas yeah. those that don't have an entrepreneurial mindset are weighed down by it. It cripples them yeah. for doing it anything going forward and and your I thought that was such an interesting thing about your story with Paddy's bathroom because it's a great idea and there yeah. is clearly a need but yeah. there are so many other factors at work when you launch something like that yeah and you know be humble enough to know that because you had a success once and a stellar success you know that was that was a whole lot of circumstances it was other people that helped you it was uh, ideas that cut through and etc and it doesn't you know oh that's the formula just roll it out elsewhere so that was quite humbling but you know the learnings I had from that have, have enriched my life because it's helped me go on to do some of the other work that, that, that I've done and I guess the the idea some of the work that I've done since after selling Ella's and, and closing Paddy's um, is it, a lot of it is around the concept of what you and I perhaps many listeners automatically define as entrepreneurship is in the business context and i've tried to take the learnings that i've had out of the business context and say we need entrepreneurship in politics in education in charities in civic society because we need to take risks evaluated risks we need to be creative we need to have the mission or the purpose we need to know our purpose it's all of those things that the entrepreneurs do so well I feel are frowned upon or not embraced in a world of politics where people may think, well, you know, if I'm seen to waste public money or I'm seen to do something that isn't going to get my vote in the next two years, then 
I might not do it. Or the charity world, the, the, the charity commission sort of responsibilities on, on trustees make a very conservative with a small c sort of mindset of where where a trustee can allocate money or can go forward. And, you know, there's systemic things, I know, but we need entrepreneurial mindsets. Otherwise, that whole saying, we always did what we always done and we'll always get what we always got. And if we're in a world where there's plenty of problems, we need to have people that aren't going to think like that beyond just business. It's great that they're in business, but entrepreneurship, I think, should be um, a, a word that is associated with other aspects of our society. I, I I agree. And in terms of you being an entrepreneur, um, and this will get us into a myriad of other things that you've done, advising government, being on committees, um, now Chancellor of Reading University. So many congratulations Thank on being you. Chancellor of Reading University. But I want to talk about your, your books, because you're a successful author. Um, your first book, Little Wins, The Power of Thinking Like a Toddler, um, was hugely successful. So if you could just talk to our listeners about what made you write that book and what they can draw from that book. And then I'd really like you to talk about your, your new book, Raising the Nation. Um, and what's prompted you to write that? Because I think both of those things get us into the, the wider you and the political you and how okay. you're trying to now do things on a wider stage. So. Okay. Thank you, Mark. So, um, Little Wins, The Huge Power of Thinking Like a Toddler, came about after I sold Ella's and I was just reflecting on the, the learnings that I've had. How could I share some of those learnings? And I started thinking I should write a book about the most amazing human beings that I've come across in, in my journey, which is as kitchens consumers, um, and, you know, how much I've got to understand how they think, how the context of families work, um, uh, and, um, and how, having had my own two children go through that, I am just in awe of the power of thinking that a toddler has. So my, my, my learning was the best people that we are ever is when we're about five years old, because we have this free thinking, this imagination, this self-confidence, uh, resilience, determination, a whole load of attributes that when you're five years old, you must be thinking, I just learned all of this stuff in the last five years. I, I, this life's brilliant. Just imagine I'm going to live till 80, what I'm going to learn in the next 75 years or 105 years or how long we live. And the truth is that we learn less, we take less risks, we conform, and we become less uh, less whole as a person, I think. Um, and, um, and I think that's bad for society. So my whole book, Huge Power of Thinking Like a Toddler, The Little Wins, means little people win, think like a little person, but also it's the little wins day to day that can add up to make big differences to people's life. So ultimately it's a, it's a personal development book, I suppose. Um, you know, I thought about writing it for entrepreneurs and, and their risk journeys. There's a lot about Ellis Kitchen in there, but you know, my publisher said very quickly, no, no, this is applicable to everybody. This is kind of a personal development book, self-help book. And, and the point is, you know, we're not asking people to learn new skills or, or, or new thinking. It's re rediscovering how you once thought. Um, you know, we we're talking about tenacity a little bit and failing fast. Well, all of those of us that have the privilege of being able to walk, none of us thought, I'm going to walk and I walk. We all fell over 500 times. And each time we got a little bit closer to walking because we adapted and adjusted something. And that 499th time all came together and we toddled a few steps forward and then we quickly mastered that. Well, you know, we don't do that in many aspects of life. We, we give up far too early. So 
my idea within the book is to grow down, <laughs> remember how you were, feel how you were when um, you, when toddler when you were a toddler. You know, and I'm not idolizing certain uh, lifestyles that that were idyllic child uh, toddler childhoods, but you know, this is this is an evolutionary attribute of all toddlers is that they're inquisitive and curious and brave, and 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 I put nine attributes that they excel at, and sort of worked out small ways that we can introduce them back into our lives to help us solve problems in our personal, our professional, and our societal lives. And um, that book was out about uh, six years ago, and it was uh, became a bestseller, and I'm very proud of it. My, my latest book, um, just out now, is uh, called Raising the Nation, and it's really around how to build a better world for our children, because if we build a better world for our children, we build a better world from for everybody, given that children become society uh, when they grow up. So really the book challenges what success looks like for a society and explores how collectively we can build that better future for us all um, by throwing down the challenge that if we really, really want that best possible future, then we have to change things and we have to nurture and equip and develop our children to thrive in it. Um, at the moment, I think we've got our priorities wrong as society. Um, I think far too many of our children don't feel significant and they don't therefore become the people that they've got the potential to be. And because they don't do that, then our country is poorer, poorer economically, it's culturally, socially, um, and it just seems that we've chosen to neglect the greatest asset that we've got as a country, which is our children's potential. And if we can change this, then we've got a brighter future for all of us. Um, and the book sets out uh, a framework of policies targeted at, at, at government and, and, and policymakers um, to rethink, for them to rethink what success looks like under a framework of legislation and economics and politics and democracy and programs and services um, that would help more of our children thrive and our country um, to be better. And uh, in thinking of that, I, I use the 30 odd years of experience that I've had in working with children and thinking uh, about how to get to a better world. Um, I dedicated the last two years of research to understand what's working in other countries, what's working in small scale here in charities, maybe at local council level. Um, and I engaged experts from right across every aspect of childhood um, to share with me their learning, their, their, their ideas, what they would call to government. Um, I've got 68 of them um, who've written across, and I've included to back up my arguments in the book and on, on its website. Um, and, and, and they range from the expertise of, of uh, academics, endless, I don't know, 10, 15 of, the, of them in all sorts of aspects, campaigners from politicians, former prime ministers, cabinet ministers, current mayors, uh, MPs and councillors, to charity leaders, to community leaders, to business leaders, and then most importantly, to people with lived experience of you know, being in a family now, being a young person or a child now. So my, my contributors range from 86 years old um, to 16 years old, and they colour, add colour to the arguments that I've got because being a brand builder, I think stories are really important to change behavior as well as the facts and the evidence. So I've sort of brought all of that together um, in, in a book that I hope can be transformative in, in or a step towards a transformation um, in the way that our children have opportunities and therefore our country has an opportunity.
And what, what would you like to see as a result of the book? What change would you like to see, Paul? Well, I would like to see that measure of success um, more more human um, of, of what a government considers its its countries being successful for. So, you know, I did economics, I was an accountant, I grew a business, I know how important um, money and growth is. But I also know that if we measure the success of our country on GDP alone, or a com- or success of our company on its profits alone, then we know the 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 cost of things but we don't know the value of things because not everything is in a monetary um value so gdp can tell us all about the success of uh of of creating prosperity but tells us nothing about the strength of our marriages or our public debates the joy of our children's learning the beauty of the landscape and the creation of music and all of those things that add joy to life and it tells us nothing about the, the the care the kindness, the empathy, the communication skills of all of our citizens. Um, it just tells us a number, and that number could be hugely concentrated as it currently is and is increasing in, in fewer hands. So I am proposing a way to have a happier, to put it in the context of, of your podcast, and uh, not just work life, but life um, and communal life. And um, I have tried to disrupt the, the thinking, the arguments towards the thinking of what is the point of creating prosperity? What is the point of creating wellness and agency and voice and a variety of experiences from our children's childhood? The point is, I think, so that they can contribute to making a life better for them and their families and the community in the future. And I've come up with you know, out of all these 68 people, my 30 years of experience, my uh, my my um, research over two years, I can see I found three threads that come through all of this diversity of sort of information and knowledge and ideas that I've got. Three threads that I've managed to tie together in this idea of a national children's service, which is you know it's out there in diversive thinking, but um, you know I hope I've got economic and uh, logical arguments as well as the human stories to show that, you know, we should not continue as we're continuing with deeper inequality and with less chance opportunities for younger people and older people in our society. Well, we wish you um, every success with that book uh, and um, hope that it creates the change that uh, uh, you and we would like to see. And and sort of on that topic, um, just a few thoughts to, to finish about your view on the workplace. So a lot's written about flexible working, and I know that that's something that you've touched on uh, on a number of occasions, uh, and also about the pandemic and whether that's changed things and whether that's for the good or not for the good. So what are your reflections about work and flexible working, and what are your reflections on where we are now as a as a workforce in the UK, given all that's happened with the pandemic? Yeah. Um, I think my answer is is going to dance around the idea that business is about people, people, people living their lives in a, in a, I was going to say a balance, but my whole point is it's not about a work-life balance. It's about work-life blend, but it's about people motivating people so that they live their lives thriving, that they get the joy from the work that they're doing and the mastery that they get and the autonomy they get and the connectedness they get from their workplace. Um, and they can blend that 
with those same things that they get from their non-workplace so that we employers see their people as whole human beings. And I think, you know, let's say the 20th century capitalism um, and the system we still have in the 21st century drives um, businesses, especially big businesses, to think of their people as assets, as a thing, as a number if they're a huge organization. And my experience is if you understand why each of your individual people wants to work for you, what motivates them to have joined your company and to um, see the opportunities for them and your company, then you will get the most out of them. They will think and help their colleague who's got nothing to do with them and their salary or bonus. They will think about things as they're walking the dog and, and having a shower uh, that are relevant to, to your work. So, so if you can set up um, a, a, an organization that has a culture that respects that, yet demands you know, their, um, their whole self to come to work, then you've got that, that, that magic ingredient, I think, that helps small companies like Ella's Kitchen grow to compete and take market share off the huge conglomerates that we competed against. Ella's Kitchen is, has, for the last 10 years, been the biggest baby food company in the UK from a standing start seven years before that with nothing. And that, I think, is, yes, great products and great, great relationships with retailers and everything, but ultimately, it's because people invested in Ellers. They were people. People worked for Ellers. They were people, and consumers bought from Ellers, and they were people too. And I focused on understanding their motivations. So, bringing all of that back to, um, if you're a leader uh, of a growing organisation or any organisation, then you know if you think about your your staff as people, and you understand the blend that you work towards blend rather than work-life balance or just work balance, um, you'll get the most out of them. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, the way I think, I, I guess my philosophy, my theory, my learnings from 30 years in business, um, I, I would say the two greatest attributes from human being that you can invest in, uh, you can extract from, from people, get them sharing in their workplace, is a curiosity to do better and to, to ask the question why, um, and a bravery to speak up and feel that they've got the power within your workplace to say something controversial or to speak about a different alternative. And, and those those cultures that encourage that will, will thrive and just treat people as individuals. And it, that might be difficult in a company of 10,000 people, but if you cascade down decision-making to managers who have 10 or 15 or 20 people, they understand those people and, and, and you can work it up like that. So I would say that the, the relationships, you know, I think we started this podcast talking about the, the privilege I had of strong relationships when I was a toddler and a child, uh, and that set me off on my course. I think building those relationships within any organization um, uh, you know, it, it is the answer. So I very much see successful businesses um, in terms of um, psychology, almost trumping economics. Obviously, a business has to make money and has to be sustainable, has to bring rewards to all of its stakeholders. But it does that by the psychology of understanding the human condition of why people have a behavior, how it can be changed, what motivates them. And when you get that right, you get it right. So, you know, psychology trumps economics in that respect, culture trumps strategy in that respect. And um, uh, and if we can bring more humanness into to an organization. So to the specific questions you had around flexible working, 
kind of place to that blend. Some people will value that. Some people don't need that. And um, not being constrained by laws or regulations or precedent or culture that kind of puts everyone into one box, but finds a way to motivate everybody by being having that flexibility uh, and fairness within that works. And that is from within the organization, um, I, I, I think. Um, uh, and then uh, I think that, you know, just uh, understanding what motivates people uh, and rewarding them in, in that sense. Economic rewards are obviously important to all of us, um, but so are social rewards and recognition. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think I will tie all of that together by saying my philosophy that I think I've learned, which is which is tied into Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So there's, a, there's the traditional Maslow hierarchy of needs, which um, listeners may know. I've used that in my personal life and I've used that in my business as to how the evolution of a business can grow. Well, I got a different take on it um, that uh, I've sort of cobbled together. Uh, and that is um, at the bottom there, you have live. You, you need to live a life. You need to have the security of a home and food and a loving relationships and things like that. That's the basis of, of, of a human's life, I think. But it's also the basis of a company. You want to pay your people so that they can afford to, 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 to live. Um, you want to make the profits that you can afford to live as a company. That's the basis. The next line up is love. Um, so you've got live and then you've got love. You want to do something if you if you you secure about your, you know, you, there's a roof over your head to love what you do and to love the people you work with and to be excited and ambitious for what you can achieve with that. And likewise, as a company, you want your um, consumers to love your product. You want your staff to love working with you. So when you've got that love, and you know, I think that's a, a aligned by mindsets and missions and, and, and understanding motivations. The next level up is learning. As human beings, I think, you know, going right back to the education question that we have, education and learning, lifelong learning gives you opportunities um, that gives you options. Uh, it's one of the reasons I took the job at, uh, at, uh, at Reading University as, as the chancellor to, to sort of help, help refine and define and, and shout about how tertiary education um, can, can help, what skills and who should pay for it and kind of what, what the purpose of tertiary education is. But that whole idea of learning, if you, you can learn from your job as a person and your company can learn from you and the, the collective experience and memory that, that employees have, then capture that, that's great. And the final thing at the apex is to leave a legacy. And I think, you know, once all of those other things are, the aspiration of us all, when we know the rest of the things are in place there, is what difference did I make by being alive and being in, a, in, in the community and society? What could I have done? What should I have done? What will I do to leave my legacy, my handprint on the fact that I moved the world on a little bit? That's how I think about things in my life and the privileges I've had and the opportunities I've had uh, to, to, get, to take and to give and give back. But I also think from an organization, whether it's a business or a government or anything, it's what's our legacy? What are we trying to do beyond today and patch things up and, 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 and keep us ourselves, you know, living, loving and learning today? Why do we exist? Why are we different to everybody else? And what, how can we make that long term? So if you've got live, love, learn and leave a legacy, I think that's how um, I'd say you've got a happy work life. You've got a happy society. You've got happy families. 
and it's a great place to start. Well, that's a brilliant summary, Paul, and um, you've certainly left a legacy, an amazing legacy, um, not just in terms of what you've done commercially um, in uh, launching Ella's Kitchen, but also what you've done outside of that to um, help people think about the little wins um, and also now to make um, people think and government think about what's right for nations. So um, you've made a huge contribution and we've been so grateful to have your time today uh, to listen to um, to your story and your journey. Paul Lindley, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Mark. I think if listeners sort of are curious about the things that I've been saying and how we can get to that better world, perhaps they'd consider buying the book, digesting it and contributing back to the conversation of the ideas that it releases. Um, and we, sh we share our collective knowledge and we can move forward from that. To listen to more episodes and find out how to get happy in your working life, head to workall.co. Work happier.